Father, it is your kindness to us that draws us together this morning. We come corporately as a body because we come hungry, hungry to hear your word, hungry to feast on your word, hungry, Lord, for you to come. And we are all, Lord, painfully reminded this week especially of the brokenness and the fallenness of our world. And we're grieving, Lord, for many. And I ask that this morning, as we spend this time together, that you would again fill us with the hope and the confidence that what you say is true, that what you have done is real, and that our hope is secure. And we ask these things confidently. We ask these things boldly, not because of any resources within ourselves, but because we know that we are in Christ and we have an advocate with the Father, our High Priest. And we pray in his name this morning. Amen. Well, I want to read this to you out of First Timothy. Hey, I think there's a... See, hey, hello. There's some room and... If you want to, you can just sit on the table. It's fine. <laughs> All right. This is a kind of intimate setting here, isn't it? I mean, if, if you don't know one another, you do now, right? That's nice. Oh, that'll work. That'll work. That's right. Okay. Well, let me read this to you from First uh, Timothy 2. First of all, then, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions. Boy, this is the biblical logic for a large part of our liturgy. So that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And here's a verse I want us to think about. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and humankind, and that is Jesus Christ, himself human, who gave himself a ransom uh, for all. So the series that Deborah and I are are tag-teaming on uh, for you all is engaging this larger motif within the theological tradition that identified I guess a large quarter of the Christological doctrine, our doctrine of of Christ, as that which is related to Jesus as as prophet, priest, and king. Um, Last week we talked a little bit about the prophetic role that Christ played, that is, he is both the one who announces the coming kingdom, he he plays that prophetic role, but he is also the word of God itself. This is what we begin to see um, in the strange contours of Jesus' own identity and his person, when we encounter him, that he does something that surprises us in all of these types, all of these figures, all of these images in the Old Testament that prepare for his coming, uh, the prophet, the priest, the king. I, I would dare say, by the way, not just those three particular, but the whole history of Israel as well. Um, when you begin to look into the Old Testament and, and to try to find places, where is Jesus present here, I do think we run into some trouble. This is my, I mean, you've got me this morning, others would disagree with me. But I do think we get into some trouble when we begin to try to find Jesus under rocks and trees. I, I call that a mortar shot approach to prophecy and fulfillment. You drop the Bible verse into the 
cannon or the fire rocket or whatever, whatever it's called. I've got a, you can tell I don't have much of a military background. But you drop that in, and it shoots over, and then it lands on Jesus. Boom, there's Jesus. Um, that, that's one way of understanding prophecy and fulfillment, so that we try to find him uh, behind rocks and trees. I think a more whole cloth, a holistic approach to this particular matter recognizes that the whole history of Israel itself witnesses to the coming of Christ. Um, you, you remember this phrase. I, 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 we, we have it actually in our, in our creeds. Um, who spoke by the prophets, who um, Christ was died, he, bar- he was buried, he rose again. This is 1 Corinthians 15. According to the scriptures. This is actually a very interesting turn of phrase there because we would be hard-pressed to go and find particular Bible verses here and there to do the freight of everything that Paul's talking about. But what do we do? What, what's, what, I think, what I think Paul is getting at is it's the entirety of the Old Testament canon that begins to create a sense of anticipation for something more. The credits begin to roll too fast. Um, yes, they go into exile and into Babylon, the, the, Israel does. And yes, they come back, they, they, they are restored. But that restoration doesn't quite live up to, live up to, its, um, to its promise. I don't know if you remember this, this uh, little phrase in Ezra where it says, and some of the older men who knew the first temple wept when they saw the second temple because they knew it wasn't quite like what it used to be. I mean, so you have here this sense within the Old Testament that there's a gap, there's, there's a lacuna, there's, there's something that's being, that, that we're, we're, we're forced into the corner waiting for something more. And this is, by the way, that when we get into Matthew's Gospel, I think one of the fascinating things that we see when we get into Matthew's Gospel is Jesus acting on this grand redemptive stage. Now, I think we talked a little bit about this last week, and I want to get to my script today. Um, But there is a lot of cachet, a lot of, it's kind of, uh, for lack of a better term, sexy, right? To turn on CNN or Discovery Channel or whatever it is when we get into Advent or we get into Easter and you start to see these um, Jesus specials that, that try to unpack for us who Jesus was and how do they go about doing this? I think in ways that can at times be helpful, so I want to be, be a little bit nuanced here. But the ways in which they tend to do that is by recreating the world of Second Temple Judaism. They do this by recreating the worldview of those who would have been in that particular time. And when they recreate all of this, then they allow all of that data that's amassed, that background historical data, to then be trucked onto the Gospels to allow us to encounter Jesus as he really was. In other words, I call this academic Gnosticism, for lack of a better term. In other words, this is where academics can kind of flex their muscles on TV or in the aisles of Barnes & Noble and let you know that, you know, if you, were, if you could just get in to the historical resources as well as they have, you might get an encounter with Jesus like they have. It's, I think it's kind of a Gnosticism, frankly, you know, a little, a little mystical key for you to have your own special encounter. Now, I, let me nuance this. All of that can be very helpful, right? If you, you want to take your trip to Israel, we, we may even do that. Joe and I, we, that might happen sometime, here, even here at the Advent. I'm all for it. You go do that, walk where Jesus walked in. That, that's great. But the danger here, I think, is it does, cost, it does cast into a certain kind of grayness the sufficiency and the authority of the fourfold gospel. It is enough what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when we want to unpack who Jesus was, the primary way of doing that is by engaging both what he said and what he does, right? What he says 
and what he does. I understand Jesus' aims and intentions not by trying to recreate his psychology, the mind of Jesus, but by engaging the biblical witness, seeing what he says, observing what he does, and then recreating and understanding his identity on the basis of that. That's a canonical, biblical, scriptural approach to understanding the aims and intentions of Jesus. And what do we see in Matthew's Gospel? We see this incredible action of Jesus on this grand, a redemptive stage where he's born and the Magi come to him and they worship him. They recognize that he's this coming king. And then before we know it, what is Jesus doing? He's going out and he's going down to, with Joseph had a dream, they go down to Egypt, right? Then they come out of Egypt. And then Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He comes out of the wilderness. And then before we know it, we're blinking, and there he is on top of a mountain like Moses, opening the law, expositing the law to the people and its significance. What is Jesus doing in his actions? He's embodying the whole history of Israel. Israel's called to be and to do something. Israel's called to be a light to the nations, but because of this long history of sin and failure, Israel was incapable of fulfilling her particular call, her election call to be a light to the nations. And, and it's almost as if then if it's Israel becomes a garment in the closet waiting to be worn, and there's Jesus wearing that garment, embodying Israel and all those particular entities and, and leadership roles that, that compose what Israel was all about, the prophet, the priest, and the king. I want to talk to you this morning a little bit as we press ahead on the priestly role of Christ. Let me, let me just as an aside, I have found, um, and, and this is something that goes back to my days in seminary, frankly, being exposed to um, this particular understanding from Calvin of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Um, I have found an enormous amount of spiritual comfort from this particular loci, from this particular topic right here, Jesus as our high priest. Um, I, I, want, I want to just reflect on this a little bit with you from two stamp standpoints. Number one, I'll give you an outline this morning. I don't normally do that. But number one, I want to talk about what Jesus did as the actual victim. And then number two, I want to talk about his continuing role as high priest. And we talked a little bit about this last week. I want to kind of press on a little bit again this morning. But when we go to the Old Testament, Leviticus 16, for example, what do we see on the Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement? We see two goats that are separated, they're set apart. One goat is used for the cleansing, the expiation of the actual worshiping center itself, the temple. They kill one goat, the high priest goes in to do his duty, he rubs blood on the corners of the Ark of the Covenant, and when he rubs the blood on the corners of the Ark of the Covenant, what is he doing in that moment? He is he's creating, right? He is, he's expiating, he's covering over the guilt of the people so that the relationship with God could be restored once again, and the worshiping pattern could take place again this year in newness, in freshness, in purity. It was an act of ritual purification for the whole of the people. So that needed to take place. Purification had to happen. Sin um, made the people of God and their worshiping practices, for lack of a better term, besmirched. But there was another goat as well. And this goat... And symbolically, they came together, they put their hands on top of this goat, and he was sent out into the wilderness for Azazel. We really don't know who Azazel was, maybe a demon, maybe just the wilderness itself, but that goat goes away, and he actually removes the curse and the presence of sin from the people. 
Now, think about the logic of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, and I think this is interesting from a number of standpoints within the New Testament, but Hebrews does not think about Jesus' priestly and sacrificial role from the standpoint of these were the institutions of Israel, and therefore Jesus lined up with that in his own person and work. That's not the logic. The, the, the old language is archetype, ectype. The ectype is what happens on the ground. The archetype is the primary thing that provides the kind of standard for everything else that happens on the ground. It doesn't work that the Old Testament, Old Testament sacrifices were the archetype and Jesus comes in as the ectype. That's not the logic. It's actually reversed. Then what's the language that we see Paul use in Ephesians 1? He was slain from before when? From before the foundations of the world. So within the very life of God, and this is significant, God's movement toward humanity, God's self-determination to be a God for you and for me was not an afterthought in the divine being. It wasn't an afterthought. It was ingredient to his eternal identity to be a God for humanity. He was sacrificed from before the foundations of the world. Yes, it takes place dynamically and really in time and space. But from an archetype standpoint, in God's eternality, as that everlasting present, we recognize that that sacrifice of Christ for us is something that was in the divine plan from eternity past. And the sacrifices of Israel came as an afterfact to witness to what would come in time. So you see the logic there. The sacrifices of the Old Testament took place because they are related primarily to the first cause, and that is Jesus' eternal sacrifice for, for his people. I mean, just as an aside, by the way, that's the logic, too, about marriage, right? I mean, in, in, with Paul in Ephesians. It's not that God said, I wonder, I wonder what human institution I can find that might be a good illustration for the way in which I like to engage my people. Oh, you know, marriage, I think that'll work. I'll do that. No, that's not the logic. The logic is marriage was actually instituted so that it would represent what this kind of figural pattern between God and his people, this love relationship between God and his people. What's the point? The point is that Jesus, is, Jesus the human, God, very God, very man, from eternity past, had determined himself within God's own triune identity to be a God for you and for me, to be a God who would die on our account. It was not an afterthought. Now, I know, I can see the wheels turning. That raises a ton of theological questions, many of which I cannot answer, frankly. But the point is that that is, to my mind, significant. That God's desire to be a God who redeems humanity is not an afterthought to his identity, to his being, but it's actually ingredient to who he always was from eternity past. So he is our sacrifice. He is the one who came and he atoned for our sins, covering for our sins, making purification, removing the curse and the burden of sin so that we can in freedom and in joy recognize that we are, once again, the relationship with God has been has been established. So that's the, the sort of expiatory role, the, the salvific role, the, 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 um, the work of his atoning sacrifice. But the point I wanted to get to with that, because we talked a lot about that last week, is the significance of Jesus' continuing role as intercessor. And, and I wanted to, uh, to read this quote to you from, from Calvin. Through his pleading, we obtain favor. Let me say it one more time. Through his pleading... We obtain favor. Jesus, as our high priest, 
stands eternally and dynamically in his own triune life with God, by the Spirit, to the Father, not an idle kind of, um, uh, uh, well, for lack of a better term, deism, where he sort of stands back and just looks and observes what's going on around him and, and kind of reacts as thing come, things come his way. Oh, we need, to, we need to plan strategy A, strategy B, strategy C. It doesn't work that way. Jesus, in his very identity before the Father, by the Spirit, intercedes for you and for me. Through his pleading, we obtain favor. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. He tells the Father again and again what he's done on our account so that we can be saved and redeemed. He's our intercessor. And I want to reflect on this from a couple of standpoints. Number one, what does this do for you and for me? What's the kind of pastoral cash value of this? One thing I think that it does is it creates in us a certain kind of trust in our own praying. It's, it creates in us a trust in our own praying. There is one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. We have a mediator. I mean, you realize this, don't you, that the desire for an unmediated encounter in God is not a healthy desire. I mean, people, and, and this, is, uh, this is something that you'll see all the time um, in the various sort of cultural venues around us. People go out into the woods, or people go out onto the mountains, or people buy crystals, or they do whatever they can do to create some sort of sense of feeling of, of the divine, an unmediated kind of encounter with the other out there. That, that's not something that we should ever desire, an unmediated encounter with God. People who have unmediated encounters with God, as you've heard me say before, it doesn't go well for them, right? They, 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 they end up dead for like, you know. Um, so yeah, unmediated encounters with God, not something to be desired. But we have a mediator who, and this is the logic of Romans 8, who by the Spirit prays for us, he groans for us, in words that we don't even know how to say. So what does, that, what does that tell you and I, or you and me, about our own praying? It tells us, and this, is, this has been to my, this has been revolutionary for me. It tells us that when we pray in Jesus' name, by the Spirit, to the Father, that Jesus takes our human words. He cleans them up, right? And then he presents them to the Father on our account. Our praying is a triune activity. You realize that, right? It's not just you. It's you praying in Jesus' name by the Spirit to the Father. And in that encounter, Jesus takes your words, he cleans them up, and he presents them to the Father in the way in which they should be communicated to him. And do you know what that should do to you? That should alleviate, at least as for me, an enormous burden to get it right when I pray. I mean, you, you, I mean, I, I, I was on staff at a church for five years, and and um, and I, I, I again, I'll nuance this, but I'll just give you the illustration first. Um, I remember we had a young a woman in the faith who was a secretary at the church, and we had an older woman of the faith who, I mean, you you know what it's like to be around folks like this who they pray, and then you're like, oh, I, I think. I think we've gone into what the Irish called a thin place. I mean, we're kind of hovering between, I don't know where we are right now, but we're in a thin place. Um, you, you've been around folks like that. And I remember um, Michelle uh, saying, oh, I wish I could pray like that. I could never pray like that. Now, there's a truth 
to what she's getting at. And that is we learn the discipline of prayer. I struggle with this in my own life. Right? But the learning the discipline of prayer, learning that kind of elongated encounter with God through prayer, I, I, I get that. But there's another side where I think those kind of sentiments can be unhealthy. And I think the unhealthy side is when we think that by our rhetoric, by, the, by our own sort of um, garnered spirituality, by our own growth in faith, which is true and real, I don't want to deny that, that somehow we gain, I don't know, a little deeper access into the Holy of Holies, right? I mean, I'm kind of just on the periphery here, but, you know, I think they must be down there some... No, it doesn't, it's not... You know, it's, it's, this is such a bad illustration, but it's the only one that comes to mind. I mean, it'd be like me and Michael Jordan having a jumping contest, right? Um, I, I don't have much of a vertical leap. I don't know if that comes as a surprise to you. Uh, but let's say my two-inch vertical leap against Michael Jordan's whatever he has. Um, I mean, he jumps much higher than I do. But when compared to trying to touch the moon... Right? It becomes rather relative, doesn't it? I mean, all right, so Michael, you go jump at the moon. Oh, boy, that was really high, but you got a long way to go. Uh, all right, Jen, let you, that was really bad, but you know, you still got a long way to go. Well, the point, it relativizes it given the goal of our jumping. I mean, we don't have enough resources within us to gain entrance into the Holy of Holies. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are in your spiritual journey of faith, we, we just don't have enough. We go in a mediated way. We go in Christ, or we don't go at all. And in Christ, when you pray, that allows you to pray whatever you want to pray. Now, I, I, again, I want to nuance this. I think we need to learn the discipline of allowing the scriptures to shape the ways in which we pray. Right? And this is one of the things I do love about the liturgy within the, the Anglican tradition. And the liturgy is rich. Why? Because it's shaped... It helps teach us. We need speech coaching, right? We, we coach our kids uh, to talk the right way. And uh, because you all know, I've got three. Um, they can say things that make me want to just crawl in a hole and die. I mean, I've, I've had it happen where, um, and normally my wife and I can try to be kind of witty to get us, ourselves out of sticky situations. I've been in moments in the grocery line one time. I won't even tell you what my son said. I, I, I just couldn't say anything. I just stunned, embarrassed, um, but it comes out why. Our kids, our kids need speech coaching. They need speech training to learn how to talk the right way. Um, we need it too. We need speech coaching. We need to be trained and taught how to pray. And I think, unfortunately, we forget our best resource is the Bible, namely the Psalter. I mean, the Psalms teach us how to pray. The Psalms, by the way, are ready-made for every experience that you will encounter in your life. It's like a small tote bag of the whole Bible, frankly, in the Psalter. And you might be ready to praise today. Well, there's Psalms for you. You might be a little you know, down in the mouth today. There's Psalms for you too. You may be rejoicing that God delivered you from something. There's a Psalm for that. right? Now, the, the Psalms can help speech coach our way into praying well. But still, I think the theological point remains that there's a certain kind of levity that comes with the recognition that when we offer our prayers to the Father, we do so in Christ by the Spirit. And He prays for us, and He cleans up our prayers and presents them to the Father. So, 
you know, I don't know. I think we, we all need to grow in our maturity and how we pray, but I hope that alleviates you. I mean, I bet some of you, I bet if we knew some of the things you all say when you pray, because I know if you heard of some things I say when I pray, you'd be really embarrassed, right? I mean, I hope, hope no one ever hears that, but Jesus, you heard it, right? It's okay, right? It's okay. I mean, I think that is one of the great joys that comes with recognizing that in Christ, he prays for us and we uh, can say whatever we want to to him. Second thing. Um, this is good news because it gives peace to the godly conscience. It gives peace to recognize that our intercessor pleads on our account. Everything that we do is derivative. Realize this, right? We're all, we are a kingdom of priests, so uh, the Apostle Peter says. right? We're kingdom of priests. That's rooted, by the way, back in Exodus. We're all made to be priests in our, and this is a classic Reformation doctrine, as we, um, as we witness to uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we do so in a derivative way because he is our high priest. We do everything because we are in union with him. And that union with him gives you confidence and it gives you an a, a, um, absolved and peaceful conscience. The conscience is a heavy thing, isn't it? It can weigh heavily on us. Um, you remember these lines, these great stories from someone like Martin Luther, who said that who you know threw the inkwell. My wife and I actually happened to have the great joy of going into Wartburg Castle, where apparently Luther threw his inkwell at the um, at the devil as he came to tempt him once again to remind him of his sin. And what was Luther's constant reply? You know, you're right. I mean, I think this is what we're trying to think about speech coaching with our children. One of the biggest things is to help our kids recognize and be able to say, I did wrong. I was wrong. You're right. Everything Satan you're throwing at me, you're right. But my conscience is at peace because I'm looking to, I'm looking to my intercessor, my high priest who was the victim, who slain on my account, who presents himself to the Father on my behalf again and again and again. And I... I'm, I'm at peace. So bring what you will. Everything that you have to say is true, um, but, I'm, but I'm at peace. Oh, boy. I do want to leave time for questions. Last one. Confidence in the fact, um, this is the third point, this, uh, this notion that Jesus continually is our high priest gives us confidence to recognize that he prays for us. You know, I am... Um, I think I've talked about this here many years ago, actually, at, at Advent. Um, but the, isn't it interesting in the Gospel of John, uh, John uh, 17, for example, we get into chapter 14 and then into 15, and we, go, we get into that part of John's Gospel that, that scholars call the farewell discourse. We put it in another terms, that's Jesus preparing his people, his disciples, for the fact that he's going to leave. And, you know... Boy, again this week, as we've watched the TV, I've had to yank myself away from it. As we've watched the TV again this week, haven't we been reminded about Jesus' absence? I mean, aren't we reminded, even this week again, in a painful way, that it's not like it's supposed to be? That we're caught in some sort of tension that can actually sometimes leave our souls paralyzed? I mean, it's a horrific thing, isn't it? It's, this isn't, that we, so, so, but he tells them. That he's, he's promised his presence, but he's also promised his absence. 
And that things, you know, he, he will come again, but there will be this intermittent period. And so as he's preparing his disciples for this, and they're not quite getting it, he's giving them all these kind of instructions. John 15, remain in the vine, John 15. Get into John 16. They're going to hate you. They're not gonna, they didn't like me. They're not going to like you either. You know, so be, be, be ready for that. But then it moves to the last chapter, chapter 17, before we move into chapter 18, which is where the passion begins. I think it's kind of the climax of this farewell discourse. And do you remember what Jesus does in John 17? I want to read to you the first verses of it. I even got it marked with my new fancy Advent bookstore Bible. (laughs) After Jesus had spoken these words, what words? All that comes in this farewell discourse. He looked up to heaven and he said, Father, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people. Verse 6. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Verse 20. I ask not just for these. This is where Jesus starts praying for you, by the way. I ask not only on behalf of these, but I also ask on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be in us. I mean, what is it that Jesus, again, not just what he says, but what he does as we look at, as we look at his actions? It's as if this farewell discourse creates all this tension in us. What do you mean you're leaving? That makes almost sub-zero sense. I mean, you're here. You're, you're, why, why would you leave? But, but he's going to leave, and he's preparing us for that. I'm going to come again, he says in John 14, so be, be, be ready. But... In the meantime, you can be assured of one thing in particular. I'm going to be praying for you. Isn't it something you think about Peter as he uh, walks down the road and he's just made this incredible confession, you know, you're the son of, you're, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, boy, that's, that's pretty. And then Jesus responds by saying, by the way, Satan asked for you, but I, I've prayed for you. I find great comfort in that. Because, um, and I learned this from my colleague Graham Colon, it's one thing I really appreciate. Um, he did a little thing on prayer. Maybe we can get him at the Advent to do this. Um, but he, uh, he promoted, he, he was quoting Simone Ville, a uh, French philosopher, uh, talking about prayer, intercourse, um, talking to God. And his point was, you know, don't pray in the way in which you think you wish you could, but pray in the, pray in the way in which you can. <laughs> I, mean, given, I mean, you think about, you know, I think about my, my, my wife as a mother, and some of you are in this case as well. I mean, life is on the go. You, know, you pray in the way in which you can. Don't live in guilt. Pray, pray how you can. But one of the great encouragements that I have found, frankly, is the fact that Jesus prays for me. You know, when I, don't, when I just don't have the... It's not there. It's heavens or brass. Um, it's, uh, it's dry. It's a dry season. It's hard to get words out. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of sort of chafed and angry or whatever, Right? Um, Jesus, pray for us. Pray, pray for these things. I lift them up to the to the Lord. He, He prays for you. You know that's that's an amazing thought. Um, as I, I don't know how what your mindset is when you come into worship, but I, I'm trying to you know, thinking of this as we come together and as we pray together. That here's you know Jesus is dynamically present. It says this in the book of Hebrews that He sings to the Father in the midst of His brethren. Right. So when we're singing together antiphonally and back and forth and then together corporately. Do you know that this is real? It's more real than you are right here. 
that Jesus actually is singing to the Father with us in our midst, praying for us. I mean, Jesus is alive and dynamic and active. And one of his key roles that he continues to play in this triune life of God is that he prays for you and for me. He is our high priest. He's our intercessor. Can I give you a little challenge? Because this has been, I don't know, over the past seven years, eight years, this particular issue right here, I think, has been one of the most spiritually forming things in my own life. The, the, the simple recognition of Jesus' continuing intercessory role on our behalf. Listen to the liturgy next week or the week after and find those places embedded in the liturgy in our worship where that particular theme seems to jump out. I heard it today. Or songs where we sing together where it talks about Jesus interceding for us. And think about the significance of that dynamic. Because, by the way, your whole salvation rides on that. That he's remembering you to the Father. I wanted to read you two quotes from Karl Barth. And then we're done. The key thing about the gospel, Barth says, is not that they know God. But that they are known of God. End quote. And there's another one from Bart. We shall speak correctly of the faith and love and hope of the individual Christian only when it, be, only when it remains clear and constantly becomes clear that although we are dealing with our existence, we are dealing with our existence in Jesus Christ as our true existence that we are therefore dealing with him and not with us, and with us only, insofar as absolutely and exclusively we are dealing with him. End quote. Our union with Christ, the fact that we are buried in him, really, to use a philosophical term, ontologically, our being is in him, and he prays to the Father on our account. That is the dynamic of our high priest, and it's frankly at the core of our of our gospel belief. So you want to bat a few things around? I think we have a couple minutes. I'm oh, sorry, I know it gets kind of warm in here. Yes, sir. You know, I get a little uh, trouble. I get a Yeah. Well, um, that's a good point. And I think, sort of, as I bring that back to what we were talking about this morning, what I think is significant about that is the danger of looking to the quality of our own soil. You know, I, I, let, me get, let me give another parable to sort of counter that one off and, and maybe put it in perspective. And it's equally troubling, <laughs> okay? So I'm not letting myself off the hook. So you have the sheep and the goats. They're split apart in Matthew 25. And Jesus says to one group, you never fed me. You never gave me anything to drink. Depart. And they said, when, when, when did we not do that? 
Well, you didn't do that when you didn't do it to the least of these. Right? They didn't know. Well, here's another side to that. And then he looked at the goats and said, but you know, you fed me and you clothed me and you gave me something to drink. And you know what? They were surprised too. When, when did we do that? Oh, when you did this to the least of these. I think the point of it is there's a danger even embedded within the Bible itself of turning in to try to do a kind of qualitative soil analysis of our own selves. Um, the nature of faith, of gospel faith, this is, I think, at the heart of what Bart was saying, these final quotes, is it forces us out from ourselves to look to another so that faith finds its quality not in the sense of our own, the depth of our own personal faith, but in the object of our faith. That's, that's a, you know, it's a, it, that makes it, I don't know, it, it moves it from this sort of internal angst to make sure that our soil is, is proper enough. And I think what happens in that process when God continues, what A.W. Tozer calls the blessedness of self-forgetfulness, right? When, when we begin to get turned outside of ourselves to see Christ and ourselves in Him and then gives us new vision for the world around us, that's what I think happened to the, to the, to the sheep, then you just start doing good works, but you don't, you're not even taking really account of it. It's like, you're not, you're not checking, there's one, put that in the pocket. It's like, oh, I didn't know I did that. It just becomes a part of how we, who we are as our faces right, turn outward, and that vision of Christ begins to then shape and mold us in ways that we don't really even know and can't even really muster. I think that, so, you know, I, I get that. You know, and one, the parables are tricky with this, you know, because they could run in multiple directions, and I think they probably should. You know, I, I'm not one that wants to whittle down the parables to one maxim. I think they do multiple things. Um, but I do think there's a danger in personal soil analysis. All right, Deborah's on next week. We'll, uh, blessings. Happy Advent to all of you. And, yes.